Progressive Rugby League. G'day, JD here. Sorry, JD is in John O'Duncan, not to be confused with JD, aka John Dorian from TV Scrubs. Did you know, ladies and gentlemen, that Papua New Guinea is the only country in the world where rugby league is a national sport? <laughs> alright, alright, stop yelling. I know you already knew. I'm just trying to get a rise. And knowing you as I do, dear friends, I'm sure you're also more than aware of the fairly recent development of the PNG government backing a bid for an NRL license, which it hopes would see the NRL further spread its tentacles in 2030 across to the north side of the Torres Strait. Now, PNG has bid for an NRL license before, and there has long been talk about the possibility. But you do wonder how seriously such an option has been entertained in the past. It's a pretty good idea in many ways, but you get the sense rugby league bigwigs had never really been convinced the financials stack up. But what if the financials were kind of looked after by a little old benefactor called the Australian government? Well, it could happen. As noted in an ABC article published upon the news of the most recent PNG bid, in 2018 the Labor Party moved a motion at its national conference to support the admission of a PNG side into the NRL if it was elected. Well, Labor wasn't victorious in that subsequent 2019 election, but they sure were in 2022. So while it's not current policy, a financial commitment from an Australian government towards a PNG NRL team is certainly plausible. Now, this episode is not really about prosecuting the case for or against the entry of a PNG team into the NRL. Rather, I'm interested in understanding why an Australian government might consider backing such a move now when they haven't necessarily in the past. And more broadly, what's the deal with soft power and sports diplomacy? What's the ultimate point of it? What are its limits? And are there any drawbacks? Well, joining me to discuss is Hugh Piper. Hugh is a research and policy manager at the James Martin Institute for Public Policy. He's a former policy advisor at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and he's kindly agreed to help us navigate this fairly unfamiliar terrain for we humble fans of Progressive Rugby League. Hugh, hello and welcome. Great to be with you, Jono. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, Hugh, got to be honest, I'm feeling a bit tentative about this topic. I'm really, really interested, but I've basically got minimal ideas. So I thought the best place to start might be to get clear some definitions for us to work with today. So some key terms and themes we'll be talking about today are soft power and sports diplomacy. Are you able to give us some basic working definitions? Let's start with soft power, and I guess it's distinction from other types of power in the realm of international relations. For sure. So soft power is a, and I'll I'll start with a little bit of history, I guess, because that's the best way to understand it. It's a term coined by a American political scientist um, at Harvard called Joseph Nye. Mm -hmm. And he did that in 1990 in probably one of the most widely cited journal articles in in the history of political science and international relations. But it's important to understand the term in the context of the end of the Cold War and a particular moment in history where American power was at its greatest and also at its most, I guess, unrivaled Mm -hmm. or unchallenged. But even though soft power was only defined in 1990, it's a thing that's existed since since ancient times. Mm-hmm. But I'd say the easiest way to define it is by, as you said, understanding what it isn't. So it exists in contrast to hard power. And these are the kind of tools that you know, countries or states use to grow or protect their security or prosperity 
through force, coercion, commerce, so trader investment mm. and bargaining. So an example of hard power would be exactly what the Russian military is unfortunately currently doing in, in Ukraine right now, directly mm-hmm. applying military force against another state. Mm-hmm. In contrast to that, though, soft power is about persuasion and attraction. It's about convincing other states to act in a way that's consistent with your own interests mm-hmm. by making them believe that it's actually in their interests to do so. Okay, okay. So to go back to the Cold War, the term soft power was coined to describe how the attractiveness of America's and I guess the West's more broadly culture, political system and lifestyle actually contributed to them winning the Cold War. So obviously there was an arms race, there was espionage, etc., you know, against the, the USSR and the communist bloc. But it was also a, a big part of that, of the Cold War, was also, frankly, a, a better way of life and a more attractive way of life in the Western America, competing against, frankly, a, a more grim um, way of life in the communist bloc. Sure. So soft power is really like trying to win people over by showcasing your best and coolest side. It's like, why don't you come hang with us? Have you seen my new sneakers? That kind of thing. That's exactly it. And, you know, it's as old as it's as old as old ancient times. You know, one of ancient Rome's most powerful tools beyond its military was that it had the most advanced and attractive civilization at the time. And that's why people wanted to be part, and I'm generalizing here, but people wanted to be part of Rome rather than not part of Rome. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a similar concept with that. You know, it's a, it's a less direct form of power and it requires a, a long-term investment, but it's arguably actually more powerful than hard power because if you can shape someone else's beliefs about what they actually think that they want or need you can win without ever having to fight in the first place Mm, very interesting okay so it's have you seen my new sneakers kind of thing come hang with us or in rugby league parlance because it's obviously a rugby league program (laughs) have you seen my carcassonne jersey or my newtown hoodie or my south sydney till i die subby holder or toowoomba clydesdale's tea towel that sort of thing okay that's exactly it (laughs) and i guess on on sports diplomacy yeah i guess the best way to understand it is that it's it's like a sub type or or one type of soft power Mm. so it exists alongside other things like art or cultural diplomacy or language diplomacy so i'm sure you know your listeners are familiar with you know alliance francais institutes or goethe institutes or the british institute yeah you know they're all really classic examples of cultural diplomacy you know spreading your language and your culture you know in order to to show off or promote the good parts of your culture and it's exactly the same with sport mm-hmm. it's about making people in other countries more interested in you more sympathetic to you and more likely you know, to therefore cooperate or align with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a really interesting example is that the Thai government during the Cold War actually sponsored or, or subsidised Thai restaurants in the United States right. in order to expand, you know, knowledge and sympathy and understanding for Thailand um, amongst the broader US population. And that would make it more likely for Americans to want their government to support Thailand. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of sports diplomacy, I guess you'd say that the United Kingdom is probably the best positioned and has wielded sports diplomacy, you know, most to its influence. Mm. You know, it's spread its sporting codes all over the world and it's still reaping the the dividends and the soft power benefits of it. Mm. Mm. 
Now, well, can there be a fine line between sports diplomacy and sports washing, or is there a, a clear kind of definitional distinction there? Well, it depends on what you mean exactly by sports washing. I assume you mean it in the sense of, you know, for instance, uh, the way in which a you know, some Middle Eastern countries have spent big in the, you know, the UK yep. Premier League. Yeah. That kind of thing, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I'd say that they're all part of the, the same idea and the same, that they all exist for the same purpose mm. of using sport in order to generate, you know, sympathy and uh, in order to generate, you know, attraction to, to your country and your culture. Yep. I guess I'd say that normal or conventional sports diplomacy is, is used for much more, you know, generous and transparent, positive purposes. Mm-hmm. The kind of sports washing that I think you see in the in the case of some of the Gulf states, you know, spending big in, in European football is, you know, obviously more nefariously motivated. Okay. Well, that's a good place to start, Hugh. So thank you very much for those definitions. Now, this is obviously related to the topic at hand. PNG will be bidding for an NRL license. Like I said, I don't want to go too far into the debate about whether a PNG team in the NRL would work or if another team would make more sense. You know, that's perhaps a, another show down the track. What I'm interested in today is the idea of the Australian government endorsing and perhaps helping to fund the bid and perhaps even helping to fund the team. For those who haven't been following the news lately, why is the idea of a PNG NRL team backed not only by the PNG government, but the Australian government, at the very least, plausible? Well, it's plausible for a really simple reason, and that's because Australia is and, frankly, should be looking for every possible advantage that it can in the Pacific and in PNG relative um, to the Chinese government. PNG and the Pacific are obviously some of, if not our closest neighbours and so it's a region that for really obvious reasons is deeply deeply important to our security you know one of the reasons why australia has been such a safe and secure place for so long is frankly because of our geography Mm. you know we've got a big land mass in a really remote part of the world but also the countries around us have not presented a direct threat to us and also haven't been i guess what you could call a staging point for a for a hostile power to present a threat to us since the Second World War. But students of the Second World War will know that, you know, the fighting in Papua New Guinea and, and the Solomon Islands and Southeast Asia against Japan, you know, demonstrated how important it is that a hostile power does not get a foothold to present a, a direct military threat to Australia. Mm. You know, what's happening at the moment in, in Ukraine and, and Eastern Europe is that they live under the constant fear and cloud of, of Russia to their east. We're really lucky not to have to live in a similar situation. So since China has started growing its influence in the Pacific and PNG, Australia has quite naturally become deeply concerned. Mm. You know, we've seen in the Solomons, Solomon Islands most explicitly recently, but also, I guess, in a, in a lower key way in PNG and, and Vanuatu too, is that China is seeking to establish enough influence through economic and other inducements to help it eventually establish a security presence in the region. Mm. This, I guess, concern has been the animating purpose, the thing that's driven a surge in in the Australian government's spending and attention and diplomacy in the Pacific since about 2017 through an initiative called the Pacific Step Up. So to return to the, I guess, the original question around an, an NRL team, though, what the government has sought to do is to build up and exploit every possible means or pathway to build influence in the region so that it can help prevent or at least minimise the growth of 
Chinese influence that is that is contrary to our interests. So we've seen more spending on on aid and development. We've seen you know, spending and, and work being done to build up infrastructure throughout the region. You know, we we've provided patrol boats to the navies and the police of, of countries throughout the region. And on the soft power side. You know, the government has invested in building up, uh, for instance, church and community partnerships with countries in the Pacific and has also, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to talking to this later, that invested in the Pacific Oz Sports Program. Mm. And, you know, PNG is particularly important in all of this because it's the biggest country in the Pacific, obviously, apart from Australia and New Zealand. It's many times bigger than other Pacific islands in terms of both its land mass and also its population. And relative to Australia, it's also the closest to us. You know, it's possible at various times uh, to cross from PNG across the Torres Strait to Australia in a very small boat. So the Pacific and PNG is is a key point of focus for Australian diplomacy. It always has been, but even more so right now. Yeah, okay. So that's very interesting. And I guess it's the concept of Australian government intervention and funding for a top-level team at the NRL level uh, rather than just support and funding for a bid that is that is of, you know, particular theoretical interest here. Uh, is there a, a precedent in the sporting world where a national government has intervened or at the very least heavily influenced a sporting body like the NRL in the name of soft power or sports diplomacy? I know the Australian government through the, as you mentioned, the Pacific Oz Sport Program within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has supported the PNG Hunters in the Queensland Cup and the Caviti Silk Tails from Fiji in the Ron Massey Cup in New South Wales and also sponsors the Fijian Draw in the Super Pacific Rugby. So that kind of thing is not necessarily unusual, but has there been intervention at what you'd call the elite level where a sporting body like the NRL has kind of been given a nudge? Yes, I mean, governments, including the Australian government, work really closely with and intervene, I guess, is an even stronger word in the the operations and activity of of sporting codes or national sporting organisations all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. usually this is around things like, you know, the safety of travelling players when they go overseas or political sensitivities Mm -hmm. like during apartheid when, you know, South African teams weren't allowed to travel to Australia or to, you know, generate positive PR. But in terms of this specific type of way of using sport for diplomatic purposes, uh, the closest example that I'm aware of, but I'm I'm very happy for, and I think it'd be great if if listeners could do their own research, and I'm very happy to be proven wrong about this, uh, that I'm aware of, though, is the four million New Zealand dollar support that the New Zealand government um, mm. has given to the Moana Pacifica super rugby team. And that's that's through a one million dollar grant and then a three million dollar loan facility. And that's for a I guess top line, you know, elite level team made up of Pacific players to partake in the, the Trans Tasman version of, of Super Rugby over the last little while. I guess the key difference with that example though is that that team though made up of and I guess representing the, the Pacifica community, ultimately is based in New Zealand. They actually play out of Mount Smart um, mm. in New Zealand, I guess, made easier by the Warriors, unfortunately, not being able to be there for the last yeah. year. And then, you know, you also mentioned the, the Fijian uh, Silk Tails, you know, playing in the Ron Massey Cup as well. That's also a close comparison. I guess the issue, though, is that both of those examples you know, simply aren't at the same, aren't of the same nature and certainly not at the same scale. 
mm. as a full top level PNG, you know, NRL team. You know, the Pacifica team ultimately plays in New Zealand, um, and the amount of money that's been put into it, you know, four million New Zealand dollars in total, is just at an altogether lower scale than yeah. what they require for an NRL team. There was a recent article written on on this by William Levin, and you know, he said that the NRL itself spends about 33 million Australian dollars each year per club, and that's in addition to the budget of each club individually. Mm. And if you think about as well the fact that the salary cap this year is $9.4 million, the level of investment that would be required is at an altogether different scale. And also the fact that, you know, quite rightly, a PNG NRL team, you know, wouldn't want to be based in Australia. They'd want to be based in Port Moresby, presumably, mm. and play, you know, proper home and away. So there are similar examples, but there isn't a direct precedent for, mm. for this kind of thing as far as I'm aware. Yeah, interesting. And I, I should take this opportunity to reiterate that the idea of Australian government intervention to get a PNG team into the NRL is, of course, theoretical at this stage, but it is something people are, are being a bit more explicit about more recently. <laughs> there was the, the Stephen Brunkatisano article in the Herald a few weeks back, former diplomat in PNG. There have been other articles pointing out that, you know, this would be a good foreign policy idea, not just to support the concept in spirit, but with ongoing funding. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a real lot of popular momentum and support both in Australia and and, and even more so in PNG for (laughs) very obvious reasons. I think there's a lot of goodwill and there's a lot of desire to, to make this happen. But ultimately... Like most such things, it'll it'll come down to you know boring practical and financial questions. I suspect rather than you know the more romantic notions of getting a permanent PNG presence in the in the NRL. I suspect. No worries. Now, why is soft power and sports diplomacy important for a country like Australia? And are these tools that we've used in other parts of the world recently? So it's really important to Australia. You know, Australia isn't a, a great power or a superpower like the US or China or, you know, more historically the USSR or the UK or France. So, you know, we've got really limited financial means and even more limited military means. So to get our way in the world, to, I guess, influence to the extent that we want, we can't just do that through force or, or weight alone. We're a, you know, we're frankly a middle power at best. And this means that we have to be more creative about how we seek to influence the world around us. So we need to use these kinds of tools like cultural diplomacy or sports diplomacy to essentially make other countries like us more. Mm. A very common thing for Australian embassies around the world to host an exhibition or performance for an Australian artist, for instance, or to, you know, to sponsor an exhibition at a local gallery of Australian art. In terms of sport, though, I'd actually say we're a little bit underdone, you know, for a country that at least supposedly defines its identity in large part through sport. Mm. I think we don't actually do as much sports diplomacy and we don't do it as cleverly as we potentially could. Mm. So, I mean, one really prominent example of Australian sports diplomacy is the now defunct annual AFL match that was played in in Shanghai every year that was partially subsidised by the Australian government. And I think the last year it was played was uh, 2019. It hasn't happened since then, obviously, due to COVID, but then uh, I think political reasons have taken, taken that over as well. The idea of that, though, and as flawed as it was, was to use 
a unique cultural export, quote unquote, in AFL as a centrepiece to you know generate interest in Australia. And then there was a whole bunch of I guess trade and investment, you know, export opportunities that were promoted around it to, to try and piggyback it in the Pacific. You know, the Australian government supports you know various I guess small scale sports initiatives in countries including PNG. And the idea of that is to generate goodwill towards Australia, and, and that's by helping promote better, you know, social and economic outcomes for the people of the Pacific. Overall, though, and you know, this is biased by my own sporting preferences, that I would say that Australia, you know, does poorly in playing to its strengths in sports diplomacy. I think that, frankly, there's a little bit too much focus on AFL because it's perceived as being, I guess, a uniquely Australian product. Mm-hmm. But frankly, no one else plays it. And we should be focusing more on cricket, for instance, in the subcontinent, where we have obviously have a direct relationship, and to an even greater extent on rugby league and rugby union in places like PNG and the Pacific, where there is a direct and, and obvious connection. Yeah. Now, I'm going to take it back a step for a second, Hugh. This is really basic stuff, I'm sure, and maybe I'm getting too philosophical here. But why are nations so keen to impress other nations with with how cool we are? Uh, It's got to be more than just an extension of human nature where we as people generally like to impress others, uh, even if we don't like them. But what is the kind of ultimate aim of this soft power stuff, this diplomacy stuff? Is it, you know, power? Is it stability? Is it just human nature? What do you think? What are we talking here? Yeah, so it's a very, I mean, it's actually a very important question to ask because you know any time the government acts or any time that the Australian government spends you know public resources and money it needs to be for a, a purpose it can't be undirected or, or without a clear purpose in this case it's a really indirect outcome that the Australian government would be seeking the Australian government sponsoring or supporting or subsidizing a PNG NRL team won't automatically make the PNG government and the and the people of Papua New Guinea you know, do or say everything that we want them to. Mm. And that's never the expectation. But I guess what it is about is building a diverse and really broad set or almost like a spider's web of connections between Australia and PNG, whether that be between governments, between, you know, cultural groups, and even just between individuals in Australia and PNG. Mm-hmm. And what that helps to do is ensure that overall, Papua New Guinea is more likely to align itself more closely with Australia than any other country. Mm-hmm. PNG, you know, has the closest resemblance um, in terms of, I guess, its culture to other Melanesian countries like Vanuatu and Fiji and the, and the French Territory of New Caledonia. But close behind that is Australia. You know, we've got really close economic ties. We spend a huge amount of, you know, aid and development money in PNG. It's one of our you know, biggest diplomatic investments. There's a lot of people in the Australian government who you know, spend time and, in some cases, whole careers working on the, the relationship with PNG. And there's also a huge diaspora of you know, current and, and, and former or descendants of, of people from PNG living in Australia. Mm. And rugby league is a huge part of that. I guess this is about this would be about cementing the cultural affinity between Australia and and PNG and helping build up, you know, popular sympathy and support for Australia amongst people in PNG. Yeah, and, and I it, guess having neighbours who are sympathetic and, and like us for who we are and the cool stuff we do, that makes the region more stable for us. Exactly. 
That's yeah. exactly it. You know, it's about having one of our closest neighbours think about and see the world in as close as possible terms to us because that's that's good for us. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. So I, I mentioned or we've spoken about the Australian government support for the PNG Hunters and the Kaviti Silk Tails through Pacific Oz Sport. There's also Sport Exchange and Team Up, which are related programs, I believe. Is this kind of thing a reflection of a new way of thinking of the evolving nature of, of sports diplomacy and soft power? Is this the kind of action that at the lower levels and the grassroots that has kind of been always happening out of the limelight? Yeah, I think that there's certainly nothing new or nothing wholly, you know, unique or fresh about Australia, you know, using sports diplomacy um, in this way. It's actually, you know, a pretty conventional form of, at least at the, at the lower scale, um, for those small local investments. It's a it's a pretty conventional way of, you know, building up links with, between communities and and you know supporting economic and, and social development um, in other countries because you know if you can draw people in through an activity that they love then you can also you know give them education you can you know give them messaging around how to um, you know build up a business or, or lead a healthier lifestyle yeah. I guess the key thing though that's changed is that since the Pacific step up that I mentioned earlier, there's just been more resources, time and attention poured into the Pacific in particular. Mm-hmm. And what that's meant is that I guess a lot of those smaller scale programs have been expanded or replicated in, in more places. And they've also been, I guess, formalised or institutionalised more. So they've had sort of, you know, a bigger label of Oz sports, you know, diplomacy put around them and greater attention paid to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Now, Hugh, Australia and PNG have a, an important relationship, as we've discussed, and there are, there may be people who don't necessarily understand the extent and complexity of it. You know, for a fair chunk of the 20th century, aside from some external interventions during the respective world wars, Australia assumed responsibility for governing Papua and New Guinea, which were combined administratively after World War II. Now, PNG was granted and assumed independence in 1975, and since then, Australia has maintained a close relationship and has been PNG's biggest contributor of aid and other assistance. Now, uh, post-colonial relationships are super complex, <laughs> understatement, but clearly Australia has a you know an obligation to help PNG towards greater stability and prosperity. I guess my question, Hugh, is how far should that moral obligation extend? For example, is it reasonable for a national government to seek to use a national sporting competition to try and achieve a foreign policy objective? And and ultimately, do you see it getting that far where the Australian government might explicitly go in that direction and make a case to the NRL? Yeah, so I mean, look, there'd be some people, not me, who disagree or at least dispute the idea that morality even exists or is an important thing in in international relations. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't subscribe to, I guess, what you'd call such a a bleak worldview, especially in the 21st century. But in the case of PNG, like, you're, you're definitely right. Like, there is a special duty owed by Australia to support, you know, the long-term development of PNG, given, you know, the, the history that you laid out there and, and frankly, the closeness of Australia and, and, and PNG. But exactly how far that obligation extends, well, that's, that's a matter of opinion and of policy as well. Mm. Does it extend in a general sense to supporting, you know, economic, social and political development in PNG? Absolutely. But is it also finite? 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, our government's paramount duty ultimately is to its own citizens. So development assistance that we provide to other countries, you know, it always has its limits. Mm-hmm. I think the question here about is it reasonable for the Australian government to subsidise or in some way support a PNG NRL team, there ultimately needs to be a really coherent and compelling case for that kind of investment laid out. And it probably needs to show two things really, really clearly and not just in a kind of general descriptive sense but to actually try and quantify it and say, you know, if we invest X amount of millions of dollars, what's the kind of return on investment in X amount of millions of dollars that we can expect? So a case for this kind of investment probably needs to show that it will advance kind of broader economic and social development in PNG. You know, it'll have benefits more than just to the, the players in the team and the people who run the team. And secondly, that it will, you know, lead to greater and broader and more sustainable Australian influence in NG. I'm not saying that those things are impossible and that that case can't be made, but I think we haven't seen it made yet. I think most of the arguments have been based more on goodwill and a desire to see the game expand and then kind of piggybacking that on the, yeah. on the foreign policy context. But I think, you know, the government, the Australian government in cooperation with with PNG would need to sit down and lay out a business case and a case for investment that kind of put the romantic element, dare I say, to one side and really make a, a firm case through, you know, cold, hard analysis as yeah. to whether or not this is the best way to spend, you know, finite resources. And I guess on the other side of the coin, if if a case is made, is it reasonable for a government to intervene and tell a national sporting competition or put a you know a forthright case or or even tell them what to do is that that might be beyond uh, the scope of this discussion but is that reasonable well yeah i mean that's a that goes i guess to a broader question of, of the extent to which you know any one person thinks that the government has the right to intervene in private enterprise or private markets I would say, though, and this is, I guess, more my opinion rather than a reflection of of the reality necessarily, but I would say that, you know, the NRL, uh, along with various other sporting codes, benefits a huge amount from government support, whether it be at a state level or a federal level in in various ways Mm. currently. Um, And if they're going to welcome and accept, you know, government support, then I think you know, that comes with a, a, an obligation to then cooperate with the government when it needs um, assistance on its own objectives. Mm. Now, whether or not that extends so far as to, you know, expanding the NRL to put in place another team in a foreign country, well, that's, that's, a, that's I guess, a, a, an even yeah. further question. But in a general sense, I think, you know, yes, it is quite reasonable for for a sporting code that benefits from government assistance and help and regulation, mm. that it should also be willing to, to give a little bit back as well. Mm, very interesting. Yeah, I guess, you know, clearly the Australian government and the PNG government would see positives to this. Uh, but in reality, I guess, you know, they would both have to convince the NRL that it's a win-win-win. I guess at the end of the day, you know, while you can imagine the potential of some influence being exerted, 
you would still think that a decision would need to be made at NRL HQ. And, and if the financials are looked after, you'd imagine that would go a long way to making that decision easier because there are some wonderful positives that, that could come of this, including uh, for the game of rugby league in terms of its own battle for hearts and minds in the wider Pacific against other codes. We mentioned the Super Rugby franchises representing the Pacific before. So, yeah, so, Hugh, there are clearly some potential positives of a, a PNG-based team in the NRL for Australian soft power and, and its position in the Pacific. But what do you see as some potential drawbacks or risks? Are there any, or is it just a, a matter of limits? Yeah, well, I think, I think it, you know, as I sort of mentioned before, for, for rugby league people like you and me and, and your listeners, you know, we would absolutely love to see this. Mm. I think it's been clearer that the people of PNG would absolutely love to see it. But, you know, the biggest issue or, the, or risk is obviously around the finance. And to be frank, there's a reason why there isn't a, a team in PNG already, despite the fact that it's the only country in the world, as you said in the, the intro, that has rugby league as its national sport. Mm. And frankly, you know, the NRL clearly doesn't think that a team there is commercially viable or at least not as viable as other options for expansion of the NRL. But if I was to be more cynical, I guess I'd actually liken this a little bit to, you know, Tasmania's long struggle to get an AFL franchise. Mm. It's a small, isolated, both at Tasmania and, and PNG, very different parts of the world, obviously. But with respect to the two sports, you know, they're small, isolated markets and they're one code islands, if you will. Mm. And ironically, that means that there's actually very little incentive for the code to invest in expanding the competition there because, frankly, there's no competition for, for hearts and minds and, and sport there. So, frankly, for this to happen, and this has been the, you know, the focus of everything that we've said so far, it means that the Australian government or maybe some other large benefactor needs to come in and provide support for a PNG NRL team to start up, but then I suspect to also, you know, sustain it no. over the over the medium to long term. And that's where things get things get really difficult. You know, governments governments are really happy or are more willing to pitch into really clearly defined, time limited initiatives. But this would potentially be a really big, ongoing, open ended commitment. You know, even if the initial startup costs were well defined mm. People would be asking questions like, what happens if things go badly? And then the only thing that will keep the franchise alive is even more money from the Australian government. You know, the last thing the NRL and the Australian government want is for a new franchise to be set up and then, you know, quickly fold within mm. within two or three years. Fundamentally, though, like mixing public, in this case, you know, foreign policy objectives, but at the same time, I guess, the private and commercial objectives of the NRL in an enterprise like this, it creates risks because it it means that an organisation doesn't have, I guess, clarity around why it exists and what it's meant to be doing from the very beginning. And that can create confusion around how investments are made, how money is spent, and the overall, I guess, you know, strategy of, of the organisation. Mm. Moreover, you know, if the if the team or the franchise is, is poorly run, this creates and you know, we don't need to look far in, in the history of Australian rugby league to see poorly run um, franchises or, or clubs and teams. So it's mm. not beyond the realm of fantasy. You know, that would create a really 
awkward situation for the Australian government. You know, if, if money is mismanaged, it's public money in a sense. So, you know, how and when should the government step in? You know, if, if, if for instance, a, a team became unprofitable or, un, or untenable or a liability, then the government's in a really, you know, it's between a rock and a hard place because it's then forced to choose between, I guess, doing the right thing in terms of government governance and spending Australian taxpayer money in a good way. But then at the same time, if it did pull out, it would, you know, kill the NRL presence in PNG and that would be a huge reputational cost mm. to Australia. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, that's, that's fair enough. That's fascinating stuff, obviously, like you say, we're, as rugby league enthusiasts, we love the idea of it, but it is important to, to think about um, all aspects of it, and including the risks. Okay, so Hugh, we are out of time, unfortunately, but there was a question I really wanted to ask you, if that's okay. Now, <laughs> now when you're having discussions with your peers in the international relations space, it might be in the office or at a conference, is there or is there not a race to try use the term realpolitik first and or most often true or false you true or false true true i thought so <laughs> no one can say that we don't ask the hard questions here at prl look uh, th- this stuff is so interesting hugh but unfortunately we are out of time and time has been us uh, so thanks so much for stepping us through the thickets on this fascinating issue uh, there's so much in it and rugby league is kind of an accidental participant which is kind of nice so uh hugh piper all the best and thank you so much for joining the progressive rugby league podcast thanks john no worries <laughs> progressive rugby league hugh piper ladies and gents interesting stuff my head is spinning but in a good way all right let's call it for another day another night thanks as always for listening ladies and gents until we next meet somewhere in that shallow refilled passage between australia and Papua new guinea known as the torres strait Rugby Colby and see ya.